0: Twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder what you are. Hi everyone and welcome back to my podcast, Lil Sapiens. My name is Dr. Max Cohen and I'm a pediatric resident from New York. And we are back with another incredible episode of Lil Sapiens. Today, we're going to be talking about osteosarcoma and Ewing sarcoma. Osteo and Ewing sarcoma represent two of the most common cancers of bone seen in pediatric patients. And since these patients, patients with these types of tumors can frequently present to a general pediatrician, a non-cancer provider reporting very nonspecific symptoms like musculoskeletal pain, or they describe some swelling. A good understanding of these disease entities by pediatricians is important to ensure the appropriate patient referral and care that they get to the person that they need to provide the proper care that they need. In addition, There are a variety of other sequelae that present in bone sarcoma survivors as a result of disease and treatment, and understanding and awareness of these sequelae by non-oncologist providers, non-cancer doctors, and the understanding by pediatricians by the general provider is extremely important for long-term patient care. The content for today's episode comes from a pediatrics and review article that is titled Osteosarcoma Ewing Sarcoma that was recently published in May of 2022. As usual, let's start with an introduction. Some of this will reiterate some of the things that we've already just said, but osteosarcoma and Ewing sarcoma Represent two of the most the two most common cancers of bone that are seen in the pediatric population. In general, bone cancers as a group represent approximately four percent of the approximate ten thousand new pediatric cancer diagnoses that are made each year in the United States. Now, with many pediatric tumors, um, some cases can be attributed attributed to environmental factors like ionizing radiation or inherited genetic risk. However, most cases are actually believed to arise spontaneously. Now, this is similar to many other pediatric tumors. This is not unique to uh, the osteo and Ewing sarcoma population the anatomical location of these tumors really helps show the differences between owing sarcoma and osteosarcoma. And uh, also in addition to that, Ewing sarcoma can also present as a soft tissue mass and we'll discuss a little bit more about that later on. Um, but patients in both of these populations commonly present with pain or swelling leading to the identification of a mass by uh, a physician's exam or by imaging. So they'll come into the office, they've got pain that's going on for some period of time, or they've got this new swelling that they've discovered, and that's what leads to the ultimate diagnosis. Now the treatment regimens, which we'll talk about in more depth, but just as an intro, the treatment regimens um, between Uh, osteosarcoma and Ewing sarcoma are different. However, in both sarcomas, they do require some form of systemic therapy, which usually involves systemic chemotherapy, as well as an element of local control. So they'll get the systemic chemotherapy, and then they'll also at some point also get some local control, which can include surgical resection or radiotherapy. For both sarcomas, survival decreases dramatically, not surprisingly, but it decreases dramatically when the disease is determined to be metastatic, which we know um, is a sign of uh, disease that's further along. And uh, in both cases, the lungs are the most common site of metastases from these tumors. Now, in both cases, as we've said, there's a variety of sequelae that are present in long-term survivors as a result of the treatment or because of the location of the primary tumor, which really requires some special attention in survivorship care. We'll talk a lot more about each of these different aspects that we've discussed in the introduction, but we can't stress enough that this is a job that's not only for the oncologist, but it's a job for the pediatrician to recognize as a possible diagnosis, in a patient that's presenting with a swelling or ongoing pain, and that treatment um, and the sequelae of treatment are extremely important for the general overall long-term care of the patient let's talk about the epidemiology of bone cancers like ooing and osteosarcoma. So in general, bone cancers in children rank in incidence behind multiple other types of cancers, meaning leukemias are more, are, are more common, and then we have lymphomas, we have central nervous system tumors, and after that is when we start to see the bone cancers. And as we've just discussed, it accounts for about 4% of the approximate 10,000 new cases of cancer that are diagnosed each year in the United States in the pediatric population. Now, if we were to count new diagnoses of osteosarcoma and Ewing sarcoma, there are approximately 800 newly diagnosed cases per year in the United States in the pediatric population, which is not that many. And approximately 450 cases of those in children ages zero to 14 years, and approximately 350 cases occur in adolescents age 15 to 19 years. Children age zero to four typically are not really um, at that great risk of pediatric um, bone tumors. It's rarely seen in that young group, and the incidence rises with the patient's age, with the highest rate of diagnoses occurring in the adolescent population between ages 15 to 19 years, as well as there is a second peak of osteosarcoma seen in adults that are older than 65 years. Oftentimes, that is associated with Paget's disease of the bone. However, that's not our topic for today. Today, we're talking about the pediatric population. Both tumor types show a slight predominance in males, with 55% of new diagnoses of osteosarcoma and 58% of diagnoses of Ewing sarcoma taking place in males. In general, most cases of bone tumors are sporadic and few patients actually have predisposing genetic factors. Compared with Ewing sarcoma, Osteosarcoma has a variety of associated syndromes that may predispose to its development, and that can include germline mutations in tumor suppressors like TP53, as in Leaf from syndrome, and RB1, as in retinoblastoma. In addition, a variety of relatively rare syndromes that all seem to predispose to tumor development because of their role in genomic and DNA stability have been associated with increased risk. Risk of osteosarcoma. And those are some things that include Rothman-Thompson syndrome, Werner syndrome, li fraumeni syndrome, Bloom syndrome, retinoblastoma, diamond black fan anemia, environmental exposure, as well as ionizing radiation. However, all of those syndromes that I just listed are rare in the population. Now, although not a genetic factor, ionizing radiation is a well-described risk factor for the later development of osteosarcoma, specifically or particularly in individuals with an underlying genetic predisposition. Now, contrast that. The development of Ewing sarcoma has no known association with radiation or other named disorders or syndrome. So it's not like we could say, oh yeah, ionizing radiation can lead to any type of cancer. It's not true. Ewing sarcoma ha- does not have that association like osteosarcoma does. Now, Ewing sarcoma does have, though, a characteristic gene fusion that's present in the tumor cells. If there are genetic factors that predispose To such a fusion, however, those genetic factors are still currently unknown. There is also a variation in incidence for osteosarcoma and ewing sarcoma that's been described. Osteosarcoma is, is diagnosed at a higher rate in children with African and Hispanic ancestry, which is compared to those of European descent. However, this difference is reversed in the adult population with osteosarcoma. So that's something that's really interesting. Contrast that again now to owing sarcoma, which is going to be really the theme of this episode. It's this contrast between osteosarcoma. Ewing. In Ewing sarcoma, there is approximately nine times more prevalence in individuals of European descent with comparatively comparatively much lower rates in individuals of African descent. So we see that distinction between osteo and Ewing sarcoma. Higher rate in African and Hispanic ancestry in children in osteos, with osteosarcoma, higher rate about nine times more prevalent in uh, individuals of European descent for Ewing sarcoma. And this difference seems to be present across all patient ages in owing sarcoma, whereas we saw that there was a difference when we start to talk about adults in osteosarcoma. To make this even more complicated, osteosarcoma has a variety of subtypes that's based on its histologic characteristics and appearance. And there's subtyping of the specific osteosarcoma that's done based on tumor grading. It's ranked as low grade, intermediate grade, and high grade. And this is important because there are clinical implications based on the grading of the osteosarcoma for both treatment and outcomes. However, However, further histologic designations within those categories do not have any specific clinical implication for treatment and outcomes. So again, we're talking about specifically tumor grade uh, in in terms of subtyping, which is important for clinical implications of treatment and outcomes, but histologic designations of those subtypes do not have that uh, implication for treatment and outcomes. So the specific types of osteosarcomas, the tumors that have a subtype designation with relevance to management and outcome, includes low-grade osteosarcomas, known as perosteal osteosarcomas, and intermediate-grade tumors, which are termed periosteal. So perosteal for low-grade, periosteal for for intermediate-grade. Now, most conventional osteosarcoma tumors, however, are high-grade, and those can be further classified into descriptive histologic subgroups, which are known as osteoblastic high-grade osteosarcoma, telangiectatic high-grade osteosarcoma, or fibroblastic high-grade osteosarcoma. Moving on to the clinical presentation, something about uh, bone tumors, which has been interesting to me when I've seen these patients, both in the emergency department, as well as on the floors, is that what brings these patients in is actually uh, typically something that's associated with trauma. So they have this initial complaint and onset of symptoms that seem to be associated with trauma, like a sports-related injury, which can complicate making the diagnosis, but ultimately that's what brings them in to get checked out and ultimately leads to this diagnosis of a bone tumor. Now for owing and osteosarcoma, the initial presentation can be subtle with complaints that include non-specific pain or swelling at the primary site of disease. Pain is present in about 70% of patients when they present and it's often associated with activity, but It's also seen at rest or at night. So the pain that they experience typically with activity, but can also be seen at rest or at night. Sometimes they will wake up at night with the pain from their tumor. So children come in all the time with pain and maybe even some swelling. They're always falling. They're always banging into things, whether it's playing football or hockey or another sport or whether it's dance and they fell and hurt themselves. There's a tremendous amount of variability in the presentation specifically for bone tumors that really makes this a challenging diagnosis to make at times. However, if you find a patient that has pain that persists through Throughout both the day and the night, is present for weeks to a month, and or has no known association with trauma or vigorous activity, that should increase your suspicion for a malignant process. Why? Because it doesn't seem like there's any inciting event to have caused the pain. That pain is ongoing. It's nonstop, not getting better. It's persisting. And there's that lack of association with trauma or vigorous activity, which should really raise your suspicion. Now, obviously, as we've already said, the, this, this subtleness of the initial presentation in patients means that clinicians should really hold a high index of suspicion and consider a more thorough evaluation in these cases in which the diagnosis of a musculoskeletal complaint is actually unclear. If there is a history of trauma, then you wanna get some radiographs. And maybe if there's a presence of a palpable mass, so something that you can actually feel on exam, it's all associated with a shorter time to definitive diagnosis after the initial presentation to a provider. But one study identified that 10% of patients with osteosarcoma and 28% of patients with Ewing sarcoma had a time to diagnosis that exceeded six months between the initial presentation of symptoms and the definitive diagnosis. And I suspect that what happens is these patients prevent to the, pre- present to their provider with these symptoms that are maybe thought to be somewhat musculoskeletal in nature due to a trauma or injury or overuse or growth. And it gets pushed off and pushed off and they follow up or maybe they are lost to follow up and then six months down the road, someone decides to maybe get a radiograph, and that ultimately brings about the diagnosis, or perhaps the tumor is just enlarging and enlarging and enlarging to the point that it starts cause, uh, causing a palpable mass or pain that just persists, persists and will not recede. So I know what you must be thinking, Uh, this delay in diagnosis is probably terrible, survival is probably dismal compared to patients who are diagnosed earlier on, at most closer to their initial presentation. However, very interestingly, despite this potential for a delay in diagnosis, survival seems equivalent between patients who experience a delay and those who do not. Now, that doesn't mean that as a provider, you should, you know, push things off before you get imaging. You should have that high index of suspicion and try to get that imaging right away in order to help the patient get the management that they need and improve their quality of life. So, you know, even though their survival might be the same, well, they're going through six months of not knowing their diagnosis, of worrying about what's going on, of hoping that it's going to get better, of pain that's not receding. So you want to get that diagnosis as soon as you can. Now, one of the nice things about bone tumors, if we can call it nice, is that the sites of disease vary between the sarcoma. So this helps to uh, distinguish What type of bone tumor you suspect the patient has just based on the uh, location of it? So osteosarcoma has a higher likelihood of being found in the appendicular skeleton, so the appendage areas, appendages, er, appendages areas. Um, Ewing sarcoma is more likely to present in the axial skeleton, so closer to the center. Now, interestingly, the presentation of osteosarcoma in the extremities has a tendency for specific localization within the involved bones. Uh, Lower extremity lesions are more often localized close to the knee, such as the distal femur and the proximal tibia, and lesions in the humerus are more likely to be proximal the potential for Ewing sarcoma to involve axial structures also means that presentation of such tumors may be even more difficult to detect on history and physical exam because of the lower likelihood of an easily detected palpable mass so uh, i just said a lot but you know one thing to consider is that Ewing sarcoma might be hiding it could be hiding somewhere. You're more likely to pick up an osteosarcoma because of its location, typically in the appendicular skeleton, either in the lower extremity localized to the knee or in the humerus localized to the proximal area of the humerus. Whereas Ewing sarcoma, like we said, um, can hide in the axial skeleton, often in um, sometimes in flat bones or, or smaller bones that are not visible to the eye or not palpable uh, on, on examination. So your patient came in, you got the history, you now have your high index of suspicion, you suspect a patient could potentially have a bone tumor, the next step is trying to make that definitive diagnosis. So whether we're thinking it's osteosarcoma or Ewing sarcoma, the diagnosis follows a very similar trajectory. You usually get some imaging to characterize the primary site of disease, and then you investigate further in order to determine whether the disease is localized or metastatic, and sometimes, uh, or rather, um, for de- definitive pathologic tissue diagnosis, a biopsy is essential in order to determine the type of tumor that this actually is. Okay, so what does initial imaging uh, um, imply? So initial imaging uh, should be performed usually with just standard radiography, simple x-ray, Um, Ewing sarcoma will frequently appear on such imaging with evidence of bony destruction. So you'll see the bone sort of uh, uh, in a destructive phase Um, in exhibiting indistinct lesional margins, lesional margins, I should say, um, described often as a moth-eaten appearance. So with Ewing sarcoma, it looks like a moth was eating through parts of the bone. There's often also evidence of cortical destruction, so destruction to the cortex, and sometimes you might see a soft tissue mass and periosteal reaction, uh, which can potentially give rise to classic imaging findings like a sunburst pattern or onion skinning. So again, in Ewing sarcoma, some of the things that you're looking for on imaging is this moth-eaten appearance, there might be some cortical destruction, you might see a soft tissue mass, some periosteal reaction, which might give you findings of a sunburst pattern or onion skinning, which is typical for Ewing sarcoma. Moving on to osteosarcoma, though, on imaging, it typically demonstrates a mixed appearance on radiography with both lytic and radiodense aspects to the lesion. So you might see this component of breaking down, but then also maybe um, radiodense, like a component of, uh, I guess you could say, uh, production or crowding um, areas of the lesion. And frequently, there can also be an accompanying soft tissue mass with osteosarcoma them as with ooing sarcoma, there might be findings of cortical destruction, there might be a sunburst pattern as well, um, and that can present, usually it's a consequence of the tumor's growth and infiltration um, outside of the bony cortex, and that can also result in periosteal elevation, which you might have heard of at some point termed Codman's triangle. It's the uh, periosteal reaction uh, where you start to get some growth that, uh, forms this triangular pattern, um, which, uh, is called Codman's Triangle. So you have the x-ray in front of you. You're looking at it. It's concerning for a sarcoma. You're not sure which one it is. Um, The next thing or the next step that you want to do is get a detailed MRI of the affected region as well as any of the adjacent joints um, in that region should also be imaged with an MRI. And the imaging allows for characterization of soft tissue extension. So you're not really looking in this case necessarily just at the bone, but you want to look for soft tissue extension and you want to look for a detection of skip lesions that might suggest local spread of the tumor in the bone of origin. You also uh, want to look for possible detection of any extension into other adjacent joints, which is why you include that as part of your imaging or other important structures in the nearby area. Because of the risk of pulmonary metastasis uh, for both of these tumor types, a CT of the chest should be performed as well at the time of making this diagnosis. And in addition to checking the lungs by CT for any evidence of metastatic disease, a um, PET scan is typically done as well to look for uh, disease in other sites of distant uh, metastasis. So up until now, it's really been kind of the same for Ewing or osteosarcoma in terms of the diagnostic approach. Here's where we are going to have a fork in the road. The approach to detection of metastases to the bone marrow differs between osteosarcoma and Ewing sarcoma. Why? Because the likelihood of bone marrow mets at diagnosis is very low in osteosarcoma compared with Ewing sarcoma. Now, This is not something that's mentioned in the article, but something that has occurred to me that sort of makes sense. We have just previously said that osteosarcoma typically takes place in the appendices uh, or, or the, uh, I should say, appendages of the body, the appendicular skeleton, whereas Ewing sarcoma tends to be more in the axial skeleton. When I think axial skeleton, I start to think pelvis. That's also the region um, where we do our, typically our bone marrow biopsies. And so I think that Ewing sarcoma and bone marrow infiltration uh, as a potential metastasis to be associated with one another, which indeed it is. And that is why bone marrow biopsies um, are not routinely performed in osteosarcoma. However, uh, bilateral bone marrow biopsies, typically from the iliac crest, like I just mentioned, which is part of the pelvis, is obtained at diagnosis to characterize the presence or absence of marrow disease in patients with Ewing sarcoma. So exactly what we just said. Now, the REIT, of metastatic marrow disease is approximately 5% in all patients with Ewing sarcoma. So you might be thinking it's not a crazy amount, it's only 5%, but that can rise to nearly 20% in those who already have other metastatic disease. Now, interestingly, only 1.2% of Ewing sarcoma is actually metastatic to only the bone marrow. So really, really, really small number. Um, But again, like we just said, if you already have examined the patient and you've noted that there's metastatic disease at other sites, then there's a nearly uh, 20% risk of metastasis to the bone marrow and Ewing sarcoma in that case. Now, although the role of PET in the detection of metastatic owing sarcoma and bone marrow is really still evolving, there is some emerging data to suggest that it might be a safe alternative to bone marrow biopsy in patients who have no other evidence of metastatic disease, meaning just using the PET to look for bone marrow disease and not actually going through with a bone marrow biopsy. Although both osteosarcoma and Ewing sarcoma have certain typical characteristics from imaging, the pathological diagnosis, meaning the biopsy, is really essential to making sure the patient gets the proper treatment. The exact approach to the treatment, which essentially we're going to talk about is going to involve some surgical component to it, really depends on the affected anatomical site, as well as the structures that are involved adjacent to that primary location, and this should always be performed by a surgeon or an IR doc, so an interventional radiologist that's specifically skilled in the management of sarcomas. So for oohing sarcoma, it appears morphologically as a small, round, blue cell tumor. This is in contrast to uh, the what we see with osteosarcoma, which is typically osteoid production on a biopsy, which is pathognomonic for a osteosarcoma. For Ewing sarcoma, uh, the tumors typically possess a gene fusion between EWS gene and a member of the ETS gene family, and the fusion of these two genes leads to a production of tumor-specific transcription factor that's a key driver of Ewing sarcoma tumor biology, allowing for the growth of this tumor. The most critical piece For osteosarcoma is grading of the tumor to determine whether it's low, intermediate, or high grade because that specifically has direct implications on outcome and treatment. And then uh, one last thing to note before we move on to the management of osteosarcoma and Ewing sarcoma. So lab tests are not helpful in making any sort of definitive diagnosis of either Ewing or osteosarcoma. If you do have a concern for a bone tumor, you may get standard lab tests like a BMP, LFTs, a CBC with a differential, and those should be performed. But if, there are, if the results of those tests are normal, it in no way excludes such a tumor. And if they are measured, you might think of lactate dehydrogenase and alkaline phosphatase levels being uh, elevated typically at presentation. And the reason for that is because of the presence of bony destruction. But these enzyme elevations are relatively nonspecific and therefore you can't use them to make any definitive diagnosis. So how are we going to manage osteosarcoma and Ewing sarcoma? We'll start by talking about osteosarcoma and then a little bit about the history, actually. So historically, before chemotherapy was introduced, the treatment of osteosarcoma was really surgical resection alone. And, you know, you might ask, well, you know, why are we doing all this chemotherapy uh, in addition to surgical resection? Doesn't it cause harm chemotherapy? And the truth is um, it can cause harm. And we'll talk a little bit about the late sequela of uh, chemotherapy later on in life. But before chemotherapy, the survival with surgical resection alone was less than 15%. And that was because of development of metastatic disease. Uh, primarily in the lungs at some point during their course of illness or even after surgical resection. And so this really underscored the need for some form of systemic therapy. And then in the early trials, therapeutic trials, they established the efficacy of adjuvant chemotherapy and later neo-adjuvant chemotherapy. So what is adjuvant, adjuvant chemotherapy? Is post-operative chemotherapy. So they would surgically resect however much they could of the tumor, and then give some chemotherapy to try and eliminate any of the remaining tumor cells. And then came the neoadjuvant therapy, which was the preoperative chemotherapy. And what that allowed really is to try and remove some of the tumor cells or kill off as much of the tumor as possible before surgery so that they can easily remove the tumor and maybe perhaps allow for limb sparing surgical procedures. And then following surgical resection, they would go ahead and give some chemotherapy to try and kill out or ensure that they, that they remove any remaining tumor cells that might still exist and studies have actually shown that the that greater than 90% tumor necrosis at the time of surgical resection is associated with improved outcomes and that's why this matters because if you start with chemotherapy and you are able to induce about 90% of tumor necrosis the patient has a much more significant improved outcome than if they did not get that neojuven chemotherapy and not walk into the surgery with about 90 percent or more of tumor necrosis so what kind of chemotherapy are we talking about back in the 1980s there was a uh, multi-institutional osteosarcoma study which established the use uh, the use of map chemotherapy so capital map as an effective treatment regimen in osteosarcoma so what is map map is methotrexate anthracycline, and a platinum-based chemotherapy like cisplatin. Since that time, many other modalities have been attempted um, as well as combinations or adjuvant chemotherapy such as high-dose ifosfamide and etoposide um, to this three-drug MAP therapy backbone. However, it did not show to have any improved outcome for uh, patients with porn tumor necrosis. Uh, There was also failure of a maintenance regimen such as pegylated interferon to improve outcomes in patients as well. So we're kind of still going along with the same regimen of chemotherapy that we have been almost since the 1980s with very little, um, I would say, effort on the part of chemotherapy and new agents to improve outcomes beyond what we already have. Now, osteosarcoma is very interesting and distinct from Ewing sarcoma, and we've mentioned this uh, earlier on in this episode, in that osteosarcoma is relatively radio-resistant. It doesn't really respond well to radiation, and therefore, surgery is considered the mainstay of cure following the neoadjuvant chemotherapy, as well as getting the uh, adjuvant Uh, which is the post-operative chemotherapy as well. So the most important thing then is going to be a wide local excision where you want to make sure you get the tumor as well as normal tissue margin surrounding the tumor so that you can be sure that you've gotten all of the tumor uh, out of the patient and that will allow for improved or better outcomes. The type of surgery may be amputation, it might include disarticulation, which is amputation through a joint or it might be a limb salvage therapy. Historically, they used to do way more amputations, but now as surgical techniques have improved, we've been doing a lot more of limb sparing surgeries, and it's actually become quite common. Now, whether it's disarticulation or limb salvage, reconstruction winds up being necessary, and that can come in the form of osteoarticular allografts, it can be an endoprosthesis made of different metals, or you might get some sort of combination of the two. And more recently, in patients who are still growing, which is obviously the pediatric population, uh, which we're talking about here, endoprosthetic devices that are have the ability to expand as the patient grows have become a more attractive option for patients. For large tumors of the distal femur or proximal tibia, uh, these patients can sometimes get what's called a Van Ness rotation plasty. And the way that that gets performed is once they resect or the tumor, uh, what they would do then is take the ankle joint and make it into the knee joint by rotating the distal part of the lower leg 180 degrees and reattaching it to the proximal femur. And that then allows for a custom prosthesis to be fitted to the rotated leg, serving as a below-the-knee prosthesis. The reason for this and the reason why it's attractive for younger patients is because those patients that want to remain active in sports now have a functional knee joint, even though it's not their native knee joint, but it is a some sort of functional knee joint allowing for... Um, Uh, less limited activity than if they were otherwise going to not have that knee joint um, and wind up uh, only being able to be involved in low-impact activities. As we've said, osteosarcoma, it's thought to be relatively radio-resistant, and so radiotherapy is not used up front in in the treatment of osteosarcoma, but there are times, there are circumstances in which we might use radiotherapy or at least attempt it, and that's when tumors are unresectable or for palliative symptom control if that's necessary. It's been shown that radiotherapy uh, can be effective for those cases, specifically requiring doses that are larger than 60 GYs in order to uh, treat um, and reduce some of the tumor burden and effectively improve some of their symptoms. What do we do for recurrent disease? Well, it's tough because treatment remains challenging for recurrent osteosarcoma. Uh, we try to do metastectomy, which is a really tough word to say, um, but metastectomy of the lungs or bony sites, which can be curative in 20% of patients. Now, that's not a lot, but again, that's 20% of patients that you could potentially save. Um, And and this is only really if the disease is isolated to the lungs or to a bone that's amenable to resection. That's typically when we see that 20% curative uh, feature of of resecting the metastases. Uh, There are many agents that are aimed at targeting some of the pathways known to drive osteosarcoma development, um, but there's really been kind of mixed success with all of that. And when it comes to recurrent disease, there are oftentimes where we use other medications, other chemotherapy agents such as ifosfamide, uh, gemcitabine, docetaxel, and maybe some tyrosine kinase inhibitors as well. In terms of prognosis, patients with localized, completely resected disease, in other words, good features, have survival rates that are approaching about 70%. Those with unresectable or with metastatic disease really fare much worse, and their survival rate is typically less than 25%. We'll call those poor features or bad features. And despite many attempts, like we said before, to improve survival rates, these outcomes really have remained unchanged for decades, and chemotherapy regimens have typically remained the same. So moving on to talking about the management of ewing sarcoma. Compared to osteosarcoma, which we've just said is pretty radiation resistant, ewing sarcoma is known to be radiation sensitive. And just like with osteosarcoma, we'll do a little historical stuff. So historically, when radiotherapy was the only thing that was used in treatment, meaning before chemotherapy was involved in the care of these patients, Fewer than 10% of patients with Ewing sarcoma survived. And so this underscored, just like in osteosarcoma, the need for a systemic therapy. Most patients nowadays nowadays are treated with neoadjuvant chemotherapy, so preoperative chemo, followed by local control with surgery or radiotherapy, followed by adjuvant chemotherapy, which is our post-op chemo. And survival, since this approach has been introduced, has increased dramatically um, through this process with this multidisciplinary approach. So we'll talk a little bit uh, more about the chemotherapy and the history and uh, the management of Ewing sarcoma now. In the 1980s, the North American Intergroup Ewing Sarcoma Study Group established the benefit of using doxorubicin and higher-dose intermittent cyclophosphamide in Ewing sarcoma therapy. And because of the dose-limiting cardiac toxic effects of doxorubicin, other alkylating agents were trialed, leading to a study known as the INT-0091 study, which established the addition of ie to a doxorubicin-based backbone, which increased overall survival in non-metastatic patients. So through INT-0091 and Children's Oncology Group Trial, uh, known as AEWS0031, the established standard of care today is alternating cycles of vincristine, doxorubicin, and cyclophosphamide, with IE chemotherapy every two weeks. We just said that the overall survival significantly improved in non-metastatic patients with this uh, form of chemotherapy. However, unfortunately, approximately 25% of newly diagnosed patients with Ewing sarcoma actually present with metastatic disease. So they're already at some disadvantage in terms of overall survival. And this metastatic disease from Ewing sarcoma is primarily to the lungs, to the bone, and or to the bone marrow. The prognosis for these patients remains poor. So when they present, the 25% that present with uh, metastatic Ewing sarcoma, their prognosis remains poor. There are intensified chemotherapy regimens, novel biological therapies that have been tried, but really there hasn't been any major success in this population either. And this is something similar that we saw to the osteosarcoma population. So in, you know, in short, what we're seeing here is that good features, good overall survival, um, Poor features, typically with metastatic disease, non-localized, right? So complicated, um, affecting adjacent structures, not being able to completely resect the mass. Those are going to lead to um, poorer uh, outcomes and poor prognosis. Of note, in Europe, uh, they are trying high-dose chemotherapy with autologous stem cell rescue. It's one such approach, but that's not something that's standard in North America. And you would think that in sarcoma, because you have the fusion gene, uh, you would expect that maybe if we can target the EWS fusion, that would be some attractive uh, feature of this uh of, of the management of this disease. However, to date, there really hasn't been any clinical success with targeting the EWS fusion gene. So, like before with osteosarcoma, standard treatment approach for uh, Ewing sarcoma is that neo-juven chemotherapy followed by local control and then a juven chemotherapy. And the best option for local control has really been debated, whether that should be surgery, whether that should be radiation, um, but there's never really been a randomized controlled trial comparing the effectiveness of radiotherapy Uh, versus surgery. In retrospective studies, uh, the evidence suggests that there is a higher rate of local recurrence with radiotherapy alone, and there's also concerns for secondary malignancies related to irradiation. But alternatively, we know that with surgery, it can lead to permanent deficits and morbidity. So there is that risk-benefit discussion and uh, approach that needs to to be taken by the physician and the family and patient when it comes to making the decision between surgery and radiotherapy. The most important thing with uh, doing surgery is resection of the local tumor and getting negative margins, so wide margins, making sure that you're taking normal tissue with you to ensure that the entire tumor is removed along with a small border of normal tissue. And then options similar to before include amputation and limb salvage with reconstruction. Reconstruction can in, could include bone grafts, prosthetic devices, combinations of the two, very similar to everything we discussed in terms of the surgeries with osteosarcoma. Now, with Ewing sarcoma of the pelvis, it's particularly challenging, and the reason is because the evidence is conflicting on whether surgery, radiotherapy, or a combination of both produces the best outcomes, and obviously, the reason why this is even a discussion is because the pelvis is a anatomically difficult location to resect tumor from, especially if it's a complicated tumor, and that can change the type of management that one would would choose because of the fact that it might cause uh, permanent damage, deficits, there might be permanent morbidity, there may even be mortality or bleeds, and that can lead to um, just overall poor outcomes for the patient. And this leads to the discussion on using rate use of radiotherapy for Ewing sarcoma. So definitive radiotherapy, meaning using it as a treatment, it can be used in select patients, including those um whom surgery would carry very high morbidity like the one we just the the people we just spoke about the patients we just spoke about who have a pelvic mass Definitive radiotherapy doses typically range from 55 to 60 GYs. And and in the post-op setting, radiotherapy is used when there are positive margins after surgery or if there's evidence of tumor spill or rupture. So those are typically when we would use radiotherapy. In Europe, post-op radiotherapy is used in patients with poor histologic response. So in cases where they find less than 90% of necrosis um, after neo chemotherapy. However, that's not something that's routinely used in North America. Similar to osteosarcoma with Ewing sarcoma, uh, when there is recurrent and metastatic disease, there really isn't a whole lot of good management to improve survival. And there, unfortunately, to date, have been no trials that significantly improve survival for patients with metastatic disease, but nonetheless, clinical trials are the recommended treatment options for these patients because of the poor outcomes. So for metastatic disease to the lungs, whole lung radiotherapy is typically recommended during upfront first-line therapy, meaning upfront patient presents, they have metastatic disease to the lungs, they should get whole lung radiotherapy in addition to the neoadjuvant Surgical resection, if possible, as well as adjuvant, which is the post op chemotherapy, as well. Of note, up to 25% of those with initially localized disease will have relapse. And this number can be even higher for those who have metastatic disease at diagnosis. And of those who develop recurrent disease, 75% will show evidence of relapse within two years of their original diagnosis. Again, Of those who develop recurrent disease, 75% of them will have evidence of relapse, typically within two years of their original diagnosis. And uh, those who have isolated local relapse have a better prognosis than those who have uh, more metastatic relapse. The approach for relapse disease typically includes local control approaches like surgery or radiotherapy with systemic therapy. And strategies that have shown efficacy typically include ironotecan, t- temodar, uh, topotecan, cyclophosphamide, ifosphamide, tyrosine kinase inhibitors, or clinical trials. The most significant prognostic factor in Ewing sarcoma is the presence of metastatic disease. If metastatic disease is present at diagnosis, their prognosis significantly declines. Patients with metastatic disease isolated to the lung fare better than those with metastatic disease elsewhere in the body. And other factors that lead to a poor prognosis includes older age at diagnosis, the tumor volume if it's greater than 200 mLs, or the largest diameter being greater than 8 centimeters, multiple areas of bony involvement, bone marrow involvement, and tumors that are located in the axial skeleton. So if we could boil down this episode really into uh, a common thread, it would be that Ewing sarcoma and osteosarcoma are similar, but they're different, and their management in terms of chemotherapy is most certainly different. We know that they have different prognoses. We know that their uh, outcomes can be different. However, they are very similar. There are some similarities between them. Other than radiotherapy not quite working that well for osteosarcoma, but working well for Ewing sarcoma, we know that neoadjuvant chemotherapy followed by local resection of disease with wide margins followed by adjuvant chemotherapy has really made a difference in improving overall survival in these patients. And prior to the advent of systemic therapy like chemotherapy, for the treatment of these diseases, outcomes and survival have were used to be dismal. The last thing we'll talk about before we round out this episode is the late effects of osteosarcoma and Ewing sarcoma. So there are treatment-related late effects which include secondary malignancy, cardiac, and pulmonary conditions as well as chronic conditions which are related to surgery. Secondary malignancy rates approach a cumulative incidence of 14%, which is a high number, at 35 years from diagnosis. Secondary breast cancer and osteosarcoma in the radiation field are the most common solid tumors that can present. Exposure to alkylating agents like cyclophosphamide and ifosfamide, as well as etoposide, increases the risk of secondary leukemia at a rate of one to three percent. There are cardiac conditions that are related to anthracycline use, such as with doxorubicin exposure, and that's particularly in cumulative doses that are higher than 450 milligrams per meter squared. The pathognomonic anthracycline-related cardiac condition is cardiomyopathy, which leads to progressive cardiac failure. Dexrazoxane is typically used as a cytoprotective drug um, when used in in conjunction with doxorubicin to try and mitigate the cardiomyopathy risks. Lung irradiation is the prime causative agent in chronic lung conditions. There can also be neurologic conditions like peripheral and sometimes cranial neuropathies, which are common after surgery or with exposure to vincristine. And cisplatin has been associated with ototoxicity in the form of hearing loss and or can cause tinnitus in survivors. Lifelong follow-up is needed in order to screen for and manage these conditions, but these are not conditions that should be taken lightly. Yes, we do need to think about them all the time, but of course, we also still need to treat the patient for the cancer that they have. Uh, The other thing to consider is that with the surgeries, patients can have significant morbidity, which can include permanent amputation, uh, pain from their amputated site, from their reconstructive site, embarrassment, shame, and overall um, just decreased ability and limited activity in their daily lives. My name is Dr. Max Cohen, and this is my podcast, Lil Sapiens. I thank you for joining me in this episode, and I hope that you'll check out some of my other episodes and continue to share in the wonderful world of pediatrics. Twinkle, twinkle, let the star have I wonder what you are.